Kelly. Hey, what's going on? Matt, not much, but thanks for having me on. My first gotcha question, do you always match your glasses to your outfit? <laughs> no, but I'm glad that you noticed. Yeah. Because I'm doing something right, if you noticed. It's, it's really pretty epic. So we'll, we'll watch from now on. So, so we're like one month plus into the new Biden administration. And the last time we got together, I think in October, uh, something like that, you had just written a piece uh, for the Quincy Institute about all of the the generals and neoconservatives that were lining up behind the Biden campaign, I guess disaffected Republicans primarily. And here we are a month in, and the Biden administration has bombed Syria. Uh, some Democrats at least are, are questioning whether or not he had the authority to do that. He's, he's made statements about Yemen. So I wanna, I wanna get into to what's going on. And let's start with uh, the team. Like, does the concern that you expressed in October, has that sort of panned out in terms of who Biden is hiring for his national security team? I think in some ways. I mean, when you think of the uh, conservative flank, um, the, the biggest complaint that we had as, you know, conservative restrainers under Trump was that he wasn't putting a lot of people on his team that reflected this desire to get out of endless wars um, and bring troops home and, and start, you know, really reforming the so John, So John Bolton wasn't on our side? Exactly. And now you have a Democratic president. So the, the biggest concern coming from, you know, the left anti-war uh, activists in that space are that he'll put in people who are from this sort of centrist, Democrat, hawkish foreign policy uh flank and that's exactly what he's done and so people like um, tony blinken his secretary of state for example he was around during the obama administration and had been quite supportive uh, of the libya intervention of the intervention in yemen uh, syria he's been quoted as saying that he didn't think we did enough in syria and others jake sullivan who was his national security advisor same thing uh, he, he, his secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin is, is more of a blank slate, but he's a career military officer. He's a former general who had to get a waiver just to be secretary of defense because he just got out uh, within the last couple of years and then went right into the defense industry. So the people he's putting in the position of national security, foreign policy, military are not coming from the Bernie Sanders uh, wing of the party. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of anxiousness about how this will influence Biden's foreign policy going forward. Um, same with his China policy. There's been a lot of tough talk in every speech that a member of his team has made, whether it's publicly or during the confirmation hearings, calling China the pacing threat, the biggest threat, um, a security threat. Um, I think his William Burns, who is his CIA director nominee, had mentioned China being the sole focus of this administration. So there really is a, a concern that, you know, you're, you're shifting the deck chairs on the on the Titanic. You're not really going to get a, a drastically different foreign policy. It's just you have people with D's instead of R's behind their name. Yeah. And it, like Biden infamously said, we're back. Um and what I heard, and, and my recollection as Joe Biden as a senator, 
has always been on the hawkish side yeah. of things. Like he and Lindsey Graham were um, both ideological pals and probably just pals, right? Right, and I and I, I think there should be no surprise at what we're seeing because you're absolutely correct. I mean, here's a guy who's been in office in on Capitol Hill for 40 years, and other from other than some very astute things that he's uh, said or. Uh, positioned on, like the Afghanistan uh, surge, for example. He was the lone person in the Obama administration uh, to oppose surging tens of thousands of new troops in, in, into Afghanistan. He lost that argument. Um, but other than that, he's been pretty much on the wrong side of every foreign policy decision uh, post 9-11 and, and before. And so it's really hard to think that he was all of a sudden going to change his stripes and be some sort of restrainer and start getting us out. For example, he might start getting us slowly extricating us out of the Middle East. But it, but my sense is it'll be to, you know, re-engineer um, the foreign policy, uh, you know, portfolio over to, to China. It's not part of any grand strategy to recalibrate our foreign policy. It'll be to just sort of, um, you know, recalibrate, you know, the resources going into another direction and yeah. keeping us involved somewhere else. You know, the, the fight over the defense secretary was about his waiver as recently being in the military, but perhaps a more concerning thing on his resume was his, um, his work as a defense contractor, right. at least sitting on the board of where did he sit? I don't remember. Uh, that would be Raytheon. Yeah. And that's very interesting because we, you and I had this conversation about generals, the revolving door uh, between uh, the, the government and the defense industry back and forth and back and forth. And if you take the long list of these Biden nominees for nominees and, and confirmees in his team, they all have ties not all, but a, a substantial number of them have ties to the defense industry because, you know, they'll go in a, they'll go into service and in, with the government under one president with a D after his name, and then in between times when the Republicans take over, where do they go? Most of them go into lobbying and they lobby for defense contractors because that's what they know. They know foreign policy or national security yeah. or people like Michelle Flournoy, who was who did not get nominated, but she was on the short list. She has a firm called West Exec and Tony Blinken was a principal in that firm. And they have a ton of corporate uh, clients who they have been helping uh, partner uh, get contracts with the Pentagon. And um, so you have a, a lot of folks. So they come in with a whole set of baggage and they are influenced by their former employers. Um, they sit on boards. Um, so they, they have an agenda that's vastly different from your, your agenda or mine, um, which is to what is, you know, the best interest of the, the, the country. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether their the best interest of the country is in mind when you know they've come hot off of you know one of these boards or actual employment in a place like Raytheon or Northrop Grumman or one, any of these top five defense contractors who 
really reap billions of dollars from the federal government every year. It's it's unbelievable how much uh, how much there what the connection is between um, the private sector and the government in um, in the in defense world. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of basic public choice. Even if there's nothing sinister about the revolving door, the people that come from the military and expect to go into the defense industry after they're done serving, um, they're thinking about where they came from and they're thinking about where they're going and right. that's, that's just human nature. And you're, you're hardly going to ignore that when you're making decisions about whether or not we should go to war. Right, and when you look at the, the former defense secretary, Mark Esper, he actually worked for Raytheon. And then when he came into service under the, the, the Trump administration as a, a, the top civilian official in the Pentagon, he was dealing with or overseeing some massive uh, contracts with Raytheon, yet Raytheon is a top five contractor for the federal government. And so how do you, how do you necessarily separate you know, your uh, loyalty, all of your connections and your network with your past employer immediately and, and when you are working in a uh, position in the in the in the Pentagon that is is dealing with contracts that are like coming up, you know, constantly in your face, and we're talking about arms sales to Saudi Arabia and and the UAE, and you had people with inside the Trump administration who were lobbying, you know, pretty aggressively for Raytheon to get these contracts, and your top guy is a former employee or a lobbyist i mean yeah. it's really hard to see that there that there is not a huge influence game going on and we are the losers as as taxpayers we're the losers because they're not making decisions based on um you know the the interest the public interest or the interest many times they're they're you know lobbying for weapon systems that the military doesn't even want they say they don't want aircraft ships um, but their lobbyists are so... Um, planes that don't fly. Yeah, planes that don't fly. They're so uh, pervasive in the system, and they have such um, intense connections with the people who work there that sometimes their interests went out over the interests of even the military itself. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it, it, to repurpose the phrase, it's a war economy. Right. It's an ecosystem. It's an it ecosystem. feeds on itself. Yes, and it seems to be a perpetual motion machine that doesn't really matter if the president's a Republican or a Democrat. Um, I'm reminded of a piece that um, you, you might remember who wrote this, but somebody at Quincy wrote a piece about the ecosystem with the think tank world. Yes. And how it is that all these, these pro-war uh, national defense think tanks uh, feed right. off of millions of dollars of money from defense contractors. Yeah. That is, that's an unbelievable story. And we just had another piece at uh, Responsible Statecraft on this. Um, the Center for New American Security was a, is a think tank that was started as a sort of feeder organization for the, you know, for the future Hillary Clinton administration back in 2007. And then when it was clear she didn't get the nomination, they sort of, um, you know, re, you know, re-engineered themselves to be a Obama feeder uh, democratic think tank and were very successful. And over time, they found that they, you know, wow, I mean, we're 
you know, we're speaking, we're, we're, we're speaking the military line here. Uh, we're very supportive of the military. Um, they're coming to our conferences. Oh, now, now we're getting defense contracts. Now we're getting uh, grants and uh, from the actual defense contractors. I mean, they were able to grow in size and influence because of this, this funnel of defense contracting money that's come in. And now, now we look at their papers and their positions and they're all in line with this sort of expansionist military primacy, whether it be staying in Afghanistan or um, being tough on China and building up our military assets there. Um, on every single overseas operation, they are for staying the course, putting more troops in, um, putting more assets into the region. And you, you have to ask, is this a response to the money that they're getting, uh, which is very substantial, or are they getting the money because that's, you know, the, they, they are a collection of establishment blobby, you know, analysts and um, former, you know, military officials and uh, government officials who, who agree with them. And it's this chicken and the egg yeah. thing. But what we had written about was that they're not disclosing these financial interests. So they put out a paper, for example, uh, that supported a military contract. It's an old paper by now, but it was, a, you know, well, military contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan, we wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to complete our mission uh, without their assistance. Well, it turns out they're getting all this money from KBR and all these places that have fielded private military contractors in the war. Um, that's just one example. So on one hand, they could say, hey, we disclose all of our our donors on this one page on our website. But when you're putting out position papers that are advocating for one weapon system over the other weapon system, or um, you know, they have corporate donors like Exxon and BP, and they're they're advocating to you know lift the ban on crude oil. Um, distribution in, in foreign industry or foreign markets, you know, and they don't say, well, we are getting this money from Exxon, you know, or Chevron. I mean, that's when, like, the, the viewers, the readers, you know, the consumers of their material and their content, ha you know, you know, have to be a little wary about, well, is this a pay for play? Right. You know, and, and I hate to pick on C, well, I don't really hate to pick on CNAS. But it's not like they're 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 alone in this ecosystem. Right. We have think tanks all over Washington that get paid either by you know government defense contractors or foreign governments, and they're pumping out literature uh, supporting a, a foreign government's line. You know, Saudi Arabia, UAE, perfect example. They flood the think tank market with with money, and it's usually through other subsidiary or third parties, so you don't really know where it's coming from, and you know, and, and then next thing you know, they're pumping out papers about, you know, well, MBS, you know, the crown prince is Saudi Arabia is really a reformer, you know, or, or, or more in the weeds, you know, policy stuff where you're wondering, are they getting paid to say that or are they getting, or are they getting the money because they already agree? But I think disclosure and transparency is, is so important because if you're upfront about where you're getting money, then I think you'd build the trust with, you know, your audience that it may be, you know, um, you know, you're getting, you know, you're seeing the, you know, you, it's more straightforward where the influences are coming from. Yeah. 
And, you know, even if it's not pay to play, there's still so much money sloshing around the system. And I, I think I talked to you about this last time. Um, I was going on Fox News Sunday and I had to school up on tribal warfare in Syria, which at the time I knew nothing about. I still don't know that much about it. And it was very difficult to find good research for a, a intervention skeptical point right. of view. But if I wanted to defend the idea of bombing them into oblivion, there would have been endless right. papers. So like with so much money sloshing around, even if it's not cynical or manipulated, it's naturally going to create that ecosystem. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, which is why I'm glad you guys are around because at the time it was just Cato and now there's a, there's Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. That's the whole name, right? Right. Exactly. And there's, there's another, where's Ed King? He's, he's at Defense Priorities. Yeah. And they're more conservative, but they are also about restraint, bringing troops home and ending endless wars. Um, and so they, they've also been great in terms of pushing back against the, you know, establishment orthodoxy, which, you know, that establishment orthodoxy is, I mean, it is fully entrenched and it's, it's really hard, you know, yeah. to poke holes in it when you have these huge organizations like CNAS, like Heritage Foundation, or, you know, CSIS and AEI and others, because they're so well-funded and they're so interwoven into the fabric of the blob or, you know, I'm mixing metaphors here, but I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're finding it difficult now. I mean, right now we have a campaign to um, really press for Biden to bring our troops home from Afghanistan and keep to the U U.S. Taliban agreement in which the rest of the foreign troops need to be out by May 1st. And all signs are pointing to him either thwarting that deadline or finding a way around it or whatever, but he doesn't want to, it, it, it's clear he doesn't want to leave. All the signs are there. And all the think tanks that we just mentioned have all been writing these really sort of mamby-pamby, you know, articles and papers, you know, not exactly saying keep them there forever, but saying things like, well, we got to be it's careful. We have to be soon. responsible, yeah. no hasty exits. And I'm like, wow, I've been covering this issue for the entire war, you know, 20 years. And they're using the same jargon, you know, the same pablum about, you know, um, leaving responsibly. And it's funny that they haven't come up with new. Yeah. I mean, if it tropes. is pay to play, at least come up yeah, with some new stuff. But it does see you, you do get a sense that they all snap into action. Yeah. And they and they and they circle the wagons. And it once you've been around Washington, you could start feeling it. You start seeing the op-eds start popping up. You see the same names like David Ignatius at the Washington Post and Max Boot and on the right. And then you, and then and then they all fall in line because their friends are all talking about it. Yeah. And so what's great about Quincy and Defense Priorities and other is that we're actually getting op-eds in the same paper saying the opposite. And they're and they're and they're good. They're good arguments because I feel like I I feel like the right we're on the right side of this issue it's just that in the past we just haven't had a seat at the table or been able to penetrate the blob in the media yeah and i'm really proud that the quincy is actually getting into new york times and getting into some in foreign affairs and some of these you know stodgy establishment papers and 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 being able to 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 to, to get our point of view out there 
Um, so that's that's a nice development, but it's I mean you see them circling those wagons and you're like wow like, yeah it's like a, you've seen it all before, but it's just too bad because I think Biden is probably on some fence and he's going to probably end up wanting to please you know um, the, the center right on this the machine yeah. yeah. Speaking of the blob, um, last time we were talking about Trump's um, stated desire to get out of Afghanistan before the end of the year last year. Shockingly, it did not happen. Um, and I was, I was skeptical at the time. We were both hopeful. But why didn't Trump succeed at that? I think that he, I think the military obstructed him from doing it. I mean, that would be my gut. I don't have a lot of inside information, but if you remember when he lost the election and then he started firing people in the Pentagon. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I think that I was I was hopeful at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of like, wow, this is a real shakeup. I think that he he knew the writing was on the wall. He wasn't going to get exactly what he wanted. Um, but he was going to make sure he got at least down to the 2500 that he'd sort of publicly promised. Um, but I think that had something to do with it. I think that he was really pissed off about the way that they had obstructed his policies um, and that in speaking out against him in, in the media. I think that, you know, it, it was classic Trump. He was just sort of like, it's all payback. I don't think that he was positioning anybody for some coup like anybody thought. Um, and I don't think he could have gotten everybody out. I think Logistically, I've heard some really good arguments that we could have probably got everybody out of there in a very short time frame. And that's from people who are actually in the military and know what they're talking about, like not like me. Um, but I think I think the brass uh, found a way to sort of just put the, the, the stop sign. Drag their feet. Drag their feet long, just long enough. Yeah. And what's you know what's sad about it all is that now we have this Afghanistan study group. Um, in which um, Eli Clifton, who's at the Quincy Institute, who I work with, just reported, you know, the majority of people on this study group that gave recommendations to Congress and the uh, president as mandated by Congress, the vast majority of these panelists have ties to the defense industry. Right. So they come back with recommendations saying, um, we can't leave precipitously. Um, we, we do want to leave, but we can't leave precipitously. And by the way, we think we should increase the number of people there or troops to 4,500 because that's the exact that's the exact number of troops we, we, we should have there to keep the peace while all these negotiations are going on. And I'm thinking 4,500 troops in the, a country as big as Afghanistan is like a drop in the bucket. It's not going to do anything. Um, but this is where the establishment is on on it and it it's just you know so we can't even get those 2500 out of there i mean i'm i'm glad we got down to 2500 but now it looks like it, it might go in the in the other direction we got to increase before we reduce yeah yep i feel like that's how we do budgeting in this town so <laughs> so why not so let's uh let's talk about some things that the biden administration has done and um i mentioned this already but uh uh, we're bombing Syria. Yeah. And he says he was defending us. It was a defensive action. Um, what really happened there? I mean, I I don't know exactly what happened, uh, but it did kind of remind me of when 
the president, when Pre President Trump assassinated Qasem Soleimani in Iran uh, as retaliation, supposedly in part for the attacks that our troops were getting at these Iraqi outposts, and they were blaming them on Iranian um, militia. And I swear, I got like a like a, a flashback to that when Biden was saying, well, these were uh, th these recent uh, attacks against uh, these Iranian backed militias in Syria uh, were targeted, but we're just letting them know that they can't get away with hitting our troops. You know, um, I've read, you know, I, I, I've read that, you know, these Iranian militias, they, you know, these are the same guys who probably were helping us get rid of ISIS, you know, a few years ago. Um, they don't want us there. We know that. We've been, you know, they've been going tit for tat for a, a long time now. Um, my question is, why are we still there? Yeah. You know, um, we're 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 close. We're closing in on this what 17th anniversary of the Iraq invasion in late March. Um, the, I mean. Yeah, we can argue about the, the the militias. Why are they there? Is there still ISIS in the region? Do we have to? My question is, why are we still there? And I think Biden is showing us that the status quo is probably going to prevail. And the saddest thing is, I don't think they really care about Iraq itself. I think um, there are forces within uh, the military establishment that are very keen on um, staying at that in that northern Ara northern Iraq Syria border area and rooting out the remnants of ISIS and they don't want to cede any control. Um, they've been working there with the you know the the Kurds and so they're probably you know really forcefully lobbying to stay there. And Brett McGurk, who was uh, one of Trump's uh, envoys uh, in Syria, is 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 now been rehired under Biden. So likelihood is he's not going to advocate for getting out of Syria. I don't even know how many guys and gals we have in Syria because they won't tell us. So I just get a sense that, you know, one, uh, we're not going anywhere. Um, and two, I think Biden seems to have the same mindset as every other president that we got to show, we got to show Iran that we're tough. We're not taking any guff from them. Um, and, you know, this is, this is just this, the same cycle of one on one one side of your mouth you're saying i want to open up relations we want to get back into this nuclear deal on the other we're going to show them who's boss and we're not going to let them you know swagger around the region and i just i i think that's just like a, a, a dysfunctional cycle um that, that has gotten us nowhere in 20 years and nobody asked the question why are we still there um why is it an american security interest that we still have troops in northern iraq taking fire and politically it's 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 impossible to believe that the iranian government would say okay i'm sorry we're gonna stop this yeah so like it like you say it's it's, it's a cycle that never ends because they hit we hit they hit we right. hit and and it never ends and it feeds the machine it i i was happy to see that um at least several senate democrats raise the whole question of whether or not the yeah. Biden administration had the authority to do this. And and I would love to see, I didn't see anything from Nancy Pelosi, who was yeah. adamant that the Trump administration needed congressional right, right. authorization oh. to bomb Syria. But I haven't seen her talk about this. So there's partisanship. But 
at least some Democrats are being consistent and saying we challenged Trump yeah. when he did it. Now we're challenging Biden. Um, the last AUMF was 2002. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, you had the 2001 for the Afghanistan operation, and then you had the 2002 for the, the Iraq uh, and then and Associated Forces, which yeah. has allowed them a blank check to just go after anybody in the region and use the AUMF, either one or two, uh, to justify it. Such an abdication of congressional responsibility. Right. Um, is, is there any hope that there is a coalition of Republicans and Democrats that, that will insist on authorization to continue bombing Syria? Yeah, I mean, we've, we saw it in the last Congress. I mean, there's a, there's a really strong coalition. There's a War Powers Caucus in the House made up of, of Republicans and Democrats. I think Tom Massey's on there, uh, Barbara Lee, who's been really on the forefront, Democrat from California, uh, on you know initiating these repeal the you know one in 2001 2002 AUMFs I mean they've you know they've introduced several bills over the last several years um, so you have you have the infrastructure uh, left and right to fight it I think there's I think it exists in the Senate too with Rand Paul and Mike Lee and I believe Chris Murphy and Bernie Sanders um, they've just been unfortunately unsuccessful i think they passed in the house but not the senate and so i i from what i hear that there's going to be another shot at this and barbara lee i think is 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 either introduced new legislation or is about to um unfortunately i mean i just i you know the senate's going to be hard i think that's where the real the real um fault line is uh you have some really great republicans on this issue but not enough to sway all those hawks and it was very heartening to see these members of congress weighing in you know with statements after the syria bombing but what can they do i mean they've really they've you know they've gone right up to the line on challenging with war powers you know the war powers act with in regards to yemen that was vetoed by um uh trump Let's see if maybe they can pass something this time, and maybe Biden would be will be more um, uh, inclined, yeah, to to sign something. But it's really going to have to come from from Congress and from the American people. Like people have to start pressing their mem their members to do something. Perhaps the the Yemen resolution is is a more fruitful path, yeah, forward. Um, although I worry about the partisan instincts of the Speaker of the House. Um, and and there has to be I don't know you you will know this better than me but the the statement I guess it was an executive order made by the Biden administration regarding um, assisting Saudi Arabia yeah. in the war in Yemen I think it's shocking that that a, 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 a arrangement exists in the first yeah. place yeah. Um, but it wasn't clear that it meant anything yeah. because it was about um, um, I forget the right word, but it was like they will no longer assist in Saudi Arabia, Arabia aggressing. Right. But if it's defensive, we're still yeah. going to help. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of mixed messages coming out from the Biden administration on foreign policy. And that was like the biggest one where you're right. He said we are no longer going to sell 
weapons to Saudi Arabia for its offensive operations in, in Yemen. But then we will maintain um, our defense. We will help, we will continue to help Saudi Arabia defend itself against Iran, uh, whether it be um, their, ter their sovereign territory or their region, I forget how he exactly put it. But yeah, he hasn't been very clear about what, what offensive operations mean. And really, I mean, if, if Saudi Arabia, say, is attacked by uh, the Houthis, who we have said are backed by Iran, uh, does, does that count? Do we, do we uh, uh, assist them in retaliating? Do we allow them to use weapons you know, that, you know, that we send them? to go after the Houthis. So I think there hasn't been a lot of clarity on that, but that sort of leaves the door open for Biden to continue, you know, this special relationship what we have with Saudi Arabia. And I think a lot of people have been fighting against these arms sales are a little, I mean, they're hopeful, um, but I think they're, uh, they, they need to hear uh, exactly what he meant um, and it will there will the Saudis and the defense industry find a loophole in which we can still you know end up sending billions of dollars worth of um, U.S. made weaponry over there, but skirting this whole Yemen uh, declaration. I mean, I know Rokana and other people have and Rand Paul as well have been really strong on getting us out of this war in Yemen. And so, and I think the Biden administration has been very clear that they want to see an end to it. But I think that the the tension is, you know, um, you know, getting out of that war, but having the pressure from the defense industry and all the other interests um, in keeping the weapons pipeline yeah. open to whether it be Saudi or UAE, these other Gulf states. I mean, it's such a lucrative business. And I, you know, and I believe in at Quincy that until we turn that spigot off, we're, we are going to be entrenched in that, in that region. Because we, on one hand, you'll hear people say, well, we'll give them the weapons to defend themselves and to secure their own region. But if we keep giving them weapons and we have this pipeline, that means we help in the maintenance, the production, a lot of times the training on how to use them. I mean... It's not this clear cut like, oh, we'll give them some some planes and some bombs and then we're out of here. It is a relationship that's forged through that, through those sales. And I think we, we just we have to turn that spigot off and we have to start extricating from the region because right now they're happy. They're, they're getting our weapons. They have um, this tacit, if not explicit, agreements to defend them. Um, you know, same with Israel. As, as long as we're there. Uh, keeping everything going, um, they can do whatever they want. And that means being more aggressive, whether it be in Yemen or against Iran. Um, so I feel like the sooner we get out of there and let them handle their own business, uh, the better. Yeah. It, like it's, it's this ongoing dilemma because, because my read of, of what the Biden statement meant was kind of a hat tip to progressive activists that have been Right. banging this drum about the human devastation yep. um, caused by American bombs in Yemen. And the Obama administration for getting into it in the first place. Yeah, and and it seemed like they're at least acknowledging that there's a lot of grassroots yeah. pressure from their base to do that. Um, but 
I feel like the American people have been pretty clear on things like Afghanistan. Yeah. I feel like um, across the board, Republicans, Democrats, independents, certainly libertarians want us out. And yet, you know, Obama runs against permanent war, gets us into more permanent war. Yep. Trump runs against permanent war. And, you know, his defenders would say he didn't get us in it, into any new wars, but he sort of flirted with the idea. Yeah. Um, and now Biden, I don't recall him running on bombing Syria. Was that like one of his slogans? They, tr they stayed so far away from Syria, you would think it didn't even exist. I mean, they're just, it just doesn't come up, which is, it's, it, that's, it, it's so, it's so, um, uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm just, I'm flummoxed by it all because we, we've actually poured a lot of money and, uh, investment in that, whether it be with the actual troops we have on the ground that we don't still don't know the number of which, but we've been bombing there. We've had drone attacks, um, it's all interconnected with our relationships with Russia and Turkey and um, the rest of the Middle East. I mean, it's it's a big deal. I mean, we spent much of the Obama administration um, calling for regime change and getting, um, you know, taking Bashar Assad out. And then this election, you don't hear a, a word of it. Yeah. And I get a little nervous because I feel like um, with the, the comment that I mentioned from Tony Blinken, who said that he felt like we didn't do enough there. Um, and then you have a whole right wing contingent who feel like that we should still be fighting in there. Um, you know, the, the Hillary Clinton, you know, the Clinton, the Clintonites of the, of the past were always pretty, um, they, they were chomping on the bit to start bombing. Um, even, and I remember, um, Hillary Clinton's, uh, friend, uh, Mark, was it Mark Morell? Um, one of her her you know compatriots is saying well if, if russia gets in the way let's bomb them too i mean so there there's been interest on both sides to stay in that war to get rid of bashar assad and i feel like almost like the unmentioning like it being so quiet that some you know we might wake up tomorrow and the biden administration is like okay we're we're going to take we're going to take bashar assad out or we're going back in there to root isis out which you know so it, 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 it's, it's unclear, and I feel like it's, it's been um, not addressed fully, let's just say. It's kind of shocking. Like, so you have this, this contradiction where the American people clearly want something, and the political system doesn't seem to deliver it. But what happened with this bombing, which in a very different way than, than the press's reaction to Trump's, was almost nothing like yeah there was there was very little acknowledgement let alone like critical discussion of of whether or not biden um had the authority to do this did he talk about this is this like a right contradiction of his campaign promises um there's just silence it's almost silence right i mean i could go read what glenn greenwald has to say but he's right. hardly he's hardly mainstream media it, it's 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 actually very disappointing and sad because it, it's almost like people are so inured to the fact that we're bombing sovereign countries all the time that they don't even blink an eye. And the fact that we were bombing Iranians or Iranian-backed militias in Syria that had hit us in Iraq, you know, people don't realize how... how um, 
silly or not silly, but you know, how strange that sounds that, you know, we are, we are dealing with all of these proxy issues. Um, we're dealing with militias that people don't even, didn't even know they exist. Um, we're using our military hardware like a hammer on little nails, uh, whether it be in Syria, which we have no real, no business being in or Iraq, which I would argue we still don't, we don't have business being in, um, against Iran who, you know, we haven't declared war against. So I feel like because I, after 9-11, we got so used to this sort of, um, you know, this, the military solution to every problem overseas yeah. that it just goes in one year and out the other. I think when Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general was assassinated last year, I think that rose to the level of consciousness because, wow, we actually took somebody out. Trump's bragging about it. Pompeo's bragging about it. Um, the military's justifying it. You know, I think that sort of like permeated our consciousness, like what's going on over there? But as far as these 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 targeted bombings, I mean, people have like, yeah, been there, done that. And they, that scares me yeah. because I feel like we've been doing that for 20 years. We've been dropping bombs on sovereign nations. And when asked, they'll say, oh, well, this is justified under the 2001 AUMF or the 2002 AUMF because the fine print says uh, associated, you know, uh, you know, groups and, you know, that we're, we're, we're trying to, we're there to root out ISIS and that qualified, you know, and so people go, okay, I guess you're right and move on, you know, and that, that bothers me. You know, I was, I was thinking about this in the context of um, the old Republican Party. I'm old enough to remember when the Republican Party was for balanced budgets and fiscal responsibility. It seems like an ancient thing now, but the Achilles heel when the Mike Lees and the Rand Pauls of the world were trying to balance the budget in 2010, 2012, 2014, was the defense budget. And the, ultimately, all of those efforts unraveled because, um, not because Democrats couldn't stomach limits on domestic spending, but because Republicans couldn't stomach any restraint in right. the defense budget. And you know, fully funding all of these never-ending wars is is a black hole. Like, there's never enough. Never enough. There can't be enough. And so it strikes me that um, we need to probably bring fiscal responsibility back into the conversation because now, now, like we're 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 about to spend 1.9 trillion. Um, nobody actually knows what's in that bill, but um, there's a lot for everybody and everything except perhaps maybe the poor people that have been forced out of their jobs because of lockdowns. Um, but it all starts and ends with a willingness to rein in defense. Yeah. And you can't rein in a defense budget if you don't have a restrained foreign policy because it's a black hole. Right. Right. And I and I feel like, you know, people who have been advocating for, um, you know, you know, uh, clawing back the defense budget have been have been kind of working it at the wrong angle. I think most Americans are like, well, if we need, you know, if we need to have, you know, X number of submarines and ships in the South China Sea or uh, ships in, you know, uh, the Gulf, Persian Gulf and, you know, the NATO here and, you know, then, 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 you know, my tax dollars, are, you know, are going to a good place because I feel safe and my 
congressman or congresswoman is telling me that this is necessary for my security and safety. I think we need to start arguing, is that ship making us safe? Having this extra ship or having this extra submarine or having these F-35s um, or these troops over here, does that make us safer? Is that part of a strategy that works? Is that in the, the best interest of the United States? And I think we have smart people you know, where I work at Quincy and other places that can start tackling this and, and start pushing back on the strategy. So let's have a budget that matches smart strategy. And if you can convince people that no, those troops over there in, in Saudi Arabia are, are, are not making you safer. It is not a, a, a United States security interest for those troops to be there because really they're just stationed there to make Saudi Arabia feel better in their, in their fight with Iran. And their military sucks. So we are doing all the fighting for them and we're equipping them. Is that in the best interest of the United States, the taxpayer or the troops that are going over there and their military families back home that are missing their dad or mom? Is that in the best? I think that's the way you get to people when you say this is not in our interest. Yeah. You know, it might be in Saudi, you know, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman's interest that we have like 17,000 troops over there stationed at bases because, you know, he can't. They, they can't defend themselves, um, but they're never going to be able to defend ourselves if we keep doing it for them. And the same with Europe. I mean, that's another whole other story. You know, taking a look at NATO and taking a look at the, the troops we have stationed in Europe. Um, are these security alliances in our best interest anymore? Can Europe start taking these um, security burdens on themselves? I'm thinking they want to. I'm listening to... Um, you know, Emmanuel Macron, the French president at the NATO meeting two weeks ago, he was like, you know what, we got to start taking care of our, our own neighborhood. And I'm like, yeah. And I think that it, when we strip everything away, I think Europeans actually don't want us there. I think that they're happy to, to, to work with us um, on certain issues, but they certainly don't want a security alliance against China, which Biden has brought up. And I think they want to. They they don't want to keep poking Russia either. I think that they, I don't think that they feel like expanding NATO is in their best interest, for example, or putting more troops on on um, the border or Russia's borders is is the best answer. And I think that I think looking at those strat those strategies in a 21st century context, and then saying, do we really want to pay for this? I think that's the best way to go at because when you start just saying we want to take two percent off the the budget and we want to we want to strip this program or take the, people yeah. start either they glaze over or they think you're, you're just taking big pair of scissors and they really don't care about it's it's an abstraction and it's like right um pencil pushing but so there's so there's that argument that that money is not necessary to be ba better spent back home which is the argument you're making yeah um because what we're doing over there is not making us safer there's a more extreme version of that argument that says it's making us less safe, right. sort of the, the Ron Paul blowback kind of thing. Which which argument is more effective? Or are they both ways to get the American people to pay more attention? I think there's both ways. I, I think the American people are, are, are pretty are pretty smart and savvy. And if you if you exaggerate too much and say, uh, 
we're not needed anywhere, you know, then that hints of some sort of isolation. Or if you say, um, yeah, any presence is, is going gonna, is gonna to receive any blowback. Or I, I feel like if you, if you approach this strategically, um, we can take China, for example. And, you know, we have, we have a, and I keep bragging about Quincy, but, I mean, they're not advocating to get out of, of, of Asia and just take all of our military assets and leave. They actually have a pretty good proposal or a plan in which we would be have a, a, a presence, but start helping our allies in the region help themselves, like be porcupines, so that they can keep their relationships open with China because there's a lot of trading and economic interests there, but be ready to defend themselves if need be. And if we can help them do that, that'd be great. Um, and keep enough of our assets there so that we keep the channels, like the trade channels open um, and, 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 and give our allies, you know, some sense that we're, we're there and in the free navigatory channels, not, you know, being aggressive like we are now. Um, if, you, if you do that, you can start shaving off your, your budget, maybe some of the ships, some of the submarines, or place them elsewhere where they might be needed. Bring some troops home that are just instigating um, or shift them elsewhere. But I think when you make those arguments that you're not calling for all or nothing, but that you're trying to be strategic and in the, in the process of being strategic, you might be able to sort of eliminate some programs, eliminate some fat, um, how about not building some of the ships that the military says we don't want, you know? So I think, you know, I think there are ways of approaching this where um, the consumer or your audience rather uh, doesn't think that you're just purely uh, ideological, but you're trying to reshape foreign policy to just be um, more realistic. Yeah. So what you're advocating, as I understand it, is responsible statescraft. Yes. <laughs> Very on brand. Uh, thanks for doing this again. And uh, um, hopefully next time, let's talk about something awesome and positive that's yes. happened. But how do we find you and Quincy online? Okay, so Quincy Institute, the Think Tank uh, uh, website is uh, www.quincyinst.org. And then I'm also an editor at Responsible Statecraft, which is our online magazine affiliated with the Think Tank, and that's at responsiblestatecraft.org. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.